This is the Jim Huber Show. Podcast. Whatever. Today's guest, one of the toughest guys to ever play for Bob Huggins, Joe Mazzola, new head coach at Fairmont State. First of all, congratulations, because I did see that uh, you're named head basketball coach, Fairmont State, and uh, that's got to be something exciting for you. Yes, uh, thank you. I appreciate it. And, uh, you know, thanks for having me on here today. I, I was able to, once you invite me on, I was able to go back and listen to some of other the, the people that you had on here. And uh, it's very humbling to be in the same, uh, you know, in the same sentence as some of the great coaches, some of the great speakers that you had on here. So uh, thank you for that. And I've, I've learned uh, a lot from this podcast stuff that I will apply uh, to coaching. So, uh, but yeah, it's great to be back at, at Fairmont Stadium. I was here for two years as an assistant. Uh, you know, when I was in Maine, my family stayed here in Fairmont and, uh, the community, the people, the administration, they really looked after my family. And, uh, you know, it's just, uh, it's a part of God's plan. And my wife and I always talked about being exactly where, uh, God wants us to be. And we feel like, uh, you know, this is that opportunity. Well, let's, let's go back a little bit because I know your journey, first of all, you're a, a heck of a player researching you. Um, you know, won what a state championship, uh, three straight years, and Gatorade Player of the Year in Rhode Island, and uh, that's you know um, great accomplishments within itself. But tell me this: becoming a player that is that good, and especially a point guard that won state championships, what was you as a young player? Kind of your mindset workouts how did you go about improving becoming that type of player to succeed at that level well you always have to have uh good people around you you always have to have examples to show you uh work ethic and and uh you know what what it takes to become good and and i just i grew up in a basketball town i grew up in a basketball family so you know i'm from johnson rhode island uh you know there's a lot of great players uh in that town there's a lot of great athletes in that town and uh, my father was a good player my uncle was a good player uh, my cousin, who, who was in the same generation as me, she was a great high school player and had played at Providence College. And, uh, you know, our, families, our family was just built on basketball, built on competition, and built on work ethic. Um, and, you know, and that was instilled in me, you know, since I was two years old, two, three years old. And um, it was always about just working harder than the next person, always competing. And uh, every day is a competition. So it just became a lifestyle. And, you know, my father just, and, you know, he was just able to put me in situations where I had to compete, where I had to work hard, and where I had to push myself and, and really get out of my comfort zone. You know, I really believe there's, you know, like talking to parents and kids today, there's a balance between like skill development and, you know, gameplay and competitive situations. Tell me this, what did you do as an individual that the time on your own, when no one was around watching you in the gym, what did your like workouts look like? How much time did you spend, you know, throughout the week? How many days did you do a workout? What did it look like for you? My father is a uh, recreation director, so we had great access uh, to a basketball facility. And for as long as I can remember, uh, I, I would be there at five thirty in the morning before school, and uh, we would lift weights in this back closet that was that was cleaned out, and there was a punching bag, and there was a a makeshift bench press, and there was a couple of dumbbells, and, and we would lift weights. We would get shots up before school, and, uh, you know, he would put me through some fundamental stuff that he did when he was a kid, and it just put me in great situations. And, uh, we would do that every morning before school, and, um, you know, I would go to school, and I would come back at night, and then we would just play games. The morning time when you'd be working out with your dad, would it be a combination of ball handling, shooting, finishing? What would you be doing? I mean, there was... <laughs> 
there are fundamental drills that I do to this day with some of our guys. That's how instilled it is in me. So we would lift, you know, 530 to 615 and, and 615 to 7. We would do uh, – he was huge on footwork. So we were always doing jump rope. We were always doing, uh, you know, wall, touch, wall touches to, to stay on your toes. And we were always doing two-ball ball handling and bikings. And uh, there's a drill called X-out layups that taught you how to get the best angle the best angle on a straight line drive and uh, how to use both hands to finish. And uh, there was a drill where I had to touch the sideline and come in and, and, you know, turn with my inside foot to get a shot at the elbow. And it was just, you know, he hammered home fundamentals and hammered home uh, specific drills that we did every single day. You did this before school started, even during basketball season, right? When practices were going on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it was every single day. And, um, you know, like I said, my, I didn't know how to work. And, you know, my father taught me how to work. He taught me work ethic. He taught me time management. He taught me uh, how to gain that competitive advantage, how to separate yourself from other people. And, um, you know, that was the way that we were going to be successful as a, as a family, you know, in our basketball career. And that's what I think you talk about, like time management. How do you manage your days? And it sounds like you scheduled it out. You had a plan that you followed. You just didn't go by the seat of your pants and just think, hey, I'm going to try to get a workout in today or this week. You scheduled it, which is, I think, key for kids to understand. That time management is very, very important. And it, it can be a strength and a weakness sometimes because there are days uh, where, you know, if I don't get something done that, I, that I, I wanted to accomplish, it kind of broke my day off. But everything was planned. And, um, you know, I had to get lifting and skill development in before school. And I had to get school in. And uh, we had to get study hall and practice in. And, uh, you know, I just had to get everything done. So uh, we sacrificed a lot. We didn't have as much uh, family dinners, um, you know, because there were so many practices, because there were so many workouts, and a lot of that was sacrificed. But, you know, we spent our family time at the gym, on the road, uh, for games and AAU and, and different sports. So, you know, it's just different strokes for different folks. You decided to go to West Virginia. Now, was that – was did you get recruited by Beeline? Was Beeline the first one that brought you to West Virginia uh, before Huggins, or how did that work? So I played one year. So Coach Beeline played one year for Coach Huggins, and then in my second year for Coach Huggins, I got hurt in like the fifth or the sixth game. So tell me this, what's the biggest thing that you've learned, you know, like that one year with Beeline and the things that you learned from him that you might use today? Uh, skill development. You know, I think Coach Beeline is always trying to improve. I think he's an innovator. Uh, he's always, you know, he, he still has the same wooden board in his office where he's trying to, you know, invent a new play or a new drill to get this concept uh you know, what drills to apply to each player. And, uh, you know, he's, he's very innovative in, in his skill development and his practice planning. Uh, so I've, I've really taken a lot from that. So, so he leaves and then Bobby Huggins, the bear, comes in. And we have, a, you know, kind of an opportunity, uh, you know, to experience him being at K-State, being around here in the Kansas City area for the year. And I know when he left, a lot of people were disappointed but understood that he's going back to, you know, his home place. So what was that transition like, going from Beeline to Huggins? It was actually a lot easier than people think. Um, they're not, you know, they have their differences as coaches, but, uh, you know, what people fail to realize about Coach Huggins is he was back to Cum Laude. Uh, he was a very smart guy. And uh, similar to the situation that I'm in here at Fairmont State, he couldn't come in and, and change everything uh, because there was so much continuity, so many returning players. And, uh, you know, we had to meet in the middle. So from a defensive standpoint, I think that's where uh, he really wanted to improve. And so we had, to, we had to meet him on the defensive side, and then he met us on the offensive side. And uh, we pretty much ran the same thing. It was a lot of a different formation, but we shared the ball. We made the extra pass. 
uh, you know, we still shot we still shot threes, and he taught the game from an offensive standpoint uh, in the same way that Coach Beeline did. So, you know, Coach Huggins always kind of more of the half court get in you. He pressed, you know, Cincy, and didn't do as much at K State a little bit. But it sounds like you know he course transitioned into more of the full court you know type pressure that he's that he's instilling today. Was that something that you guys did while you were there, or is that something that came a little bit later? No, we didn't have the personnel to to press the way he did now. Um, we were kind of a completely a different team. So uh, you know, he, it was mostly I think he had nine or ten of D-line recruits. Uh, so from that point. You know, we were, we, you know, what Beeline recruited, we were more of, uh, you know, the skilled guys, mm-hmm. um, you know, execute on the offensive end, pick people apart, play that Princeton-style offense. And um, so we didn't press, but where, where he met us was the 1-3-1. And actually some of us, some of us players were able to uh, install the 1-3-1 defense, and that became a huge staple for our team, uh, you know, as we were successful under Coach Beeline. And then once he started to get some of, you know, Coach Huggins' type of players, uh, a little bit more athletic, a uh, little bit of a tougher kid, uh, more hard-nosed on the ball defended. I think he went to the press then. I watched Huggins' teams play, and ever since, like I said, Cincinnati, you know, K-State, West Virginia, and his teams rebound. They're tough. Um, they're just physical kids, they're, you know, teams that, you know, control the boards, defensively make it tough for you to score. What are some of the key principles that you feel like make that he teaches that make his team successful in those areas? Well, one, he's very consistent. You know, a lot of times, a lot of coaches, they'll come into a season wanting to play a certain way, wanting to, wanting to execute a certain style, and, you know, if it doesn't work right away, then they kind of panic and they change. And, you know, Hugs is who he is, and he's not changing. And he's very consistent in what he wants to play, so you're doing it every single day. Uh, and he's not budging. So I think that has a lot to do with it is his mentality, his belief, and his consistency in teaching it. And then I think just, you know, from a basketball standpoint, he really wants to take people out of their comfort zone. Uh, you know, we're up the line defense where a lot of teams are kind of going to this pack line now. We're up the line trying to take away passes, trying to take, make sure that we don't allow them to run their sets uh, and really, you know, make teams try to beat us off the dribble. And, you know, teams practice 5 on all offense and they practice their sets every day, but they don't practice when the play breaks down. Um, you know, and that's something that we really stress is taking other teams out of their rhythm. That's all. I don't know if you've seen an article recently. It was, uh, oh gosh, I trying to think who it was, but it was kind of the play ugly. And they talked about, um, you know, with South Carolina success they had this year with Frank Martin and, you know, Frank being with, with Coach Huggins is that same mentality of up the line, taking people away. And it's almost like comparing the, you know, when you talk about the zoo tiger and the tiger that's in the wild. And the zoo tigers, you know, pretty much they get their food given to them. They're taken care of. It's everything's precise. This is where you go. This is what you do. And, you know, the ones in the jungle, the wild, I mean, the, each day they got to get up and they got to survive. They, they got to figure out how they're going to eat and how they're going to protect themselves and whatever. And kind of that mentality is when you take teams that are so much like we run it this way, we make our pass here entry and we go here and do that. And when you take them out of that element and you make them do something that they're not used to doing, then it really makes it really difficult for them to succeed. Absolutely. And, um, you know, we would have a drill called anti-reversal drill. And what that would, what that would be is be a three-on-three or a four-on-four drill, and uh, we can't allow the ball to get to the other side of the floor. And if it got to the other side of the floor, the drill stopped and we would run. You know, so that was huge in our defensive principles 
and making sure that the ball stayed on one side of the floor and, and taking players out of their rhythm. So many colleges have a system. In that system, they flourish. They become better players, you know, with, whether it's a certain play that makes them better or a certain concept. So now not only are you taking the teams out of the rhythm, but you're taking players out of the rhythm because they're going to have to create their own opportunities to score. They can't rely on this down screen or this play that the coach likes to run for them. That's what I think like you talk about. Even in college with the shot clock, when you can sit there and make it difficult for individuals to get the ball up the floor to where now it might be you know, 20, 26 seconds or whatever until they're finally into their set running something and they can't you know, go side to side, get the reversals uh, and make it you know, more challenging for you to guard in the half court. So tell me this. So Coach Huggins, I know you, you know, reading a lot about him and seeing stuff is the treadmill. When guys make mistakes, you got to go to the treadmill. Is that something that you experienced when you were at West Virginia? I did, yeah. Uh, I made a goal not to go on it uh, as much <laughs> as some of the other people did. But it's a, it's a great tool because it's accountability. And it lets you know that, um, you know, for every action, there's, there's a reaction. There's a consequence, whether it's a good or a bad consequence. So if I don't get opposite and inside on every single uh, shot that we take, then I, I, I lose an opportunity to get an extra possession to get a rebound for our team. And we do exactly what needed to be done on both ends of the floor as a team and as an individual. So the, the treadmill would be running – the entire practice, 15 miles an hour, and the strength coach would always hang out in the treadmill. And you know, from you know, some of the big defensive principles were if we're doing the anti-reversal drill and we're not up the line and the ball zips across our face, then we know we have to go to the treadmill. And then we go there and we run for 44 seconds. We get off the treadmill. We get back on. Yeah, I'm gonna tell you this too. The strength conditioning coach that I see that Coach Huggins hires. I, I, I go to the treadmill and say a word. I'd just be even if it was like three minutes, five minutes, whatever, I'd just do it. Conditioning coach is one of the most important parts of a college program because, you know, that's the time that there's that's the time that the team is spending with someone outside of basketball. And, and you know, a lot of basketball coaches don't know as much about strength and conditioning. So you really have to trust that person that you hire because they really are gonna instill the mental toughness, uh, the physical ability. They're gonna get that guy stronger, more flexible, quicker. And that is, you know, I think that's the most important piece to any successful college program is having that guy that you trust. Well, even when, when Coach Huggins left K-State, he, I know, you know, part of people are upset by it, and I know he left some of the staff there, but the strength conditioning coach, I know he had to stay there because he didn't want to take, you know, everyone there. So I know that was like an, an important um, retainment for the K-State basketball program when Coach Martin took over. So, yeah, I, I see that. And, and you talk about longevity of season, strength, being able to rebound, holding your spots, doing stuff like that. I think uh, the contact of the game, uh, being able to have that strength is going to be very important and maybe gain you a couple possessions in a game as well. But tell, tell me this. So when you were redshirted, you know, something that I've read about you is like you learned a lot during that year. And I see kids that get injured or hurt or they're not playing for a certain period of time and they don't like benefit from it. They don't get engaged, like have, have a why. Okay, I'm, I'm injured, but I'm going to get better. How did you go about becoming better? Be, you know, you're a point guard and learning to be like an extension of a coach on the floor and developing your IQ during that time. You know, that was the year that I credit to me wanting to become a coach because I just saw the game from a different perspective. Um, you know, I got better as a player mentally, but I got better as a person because I, I think that was the year where I kind of started to figure myself out from an identity, from a purpose standpoint. Um, you know, and in basketball, like I said, Coach uh, empowered us, and that was the year that we really made an effort to put the one-three-one in. 
Um, and there was, you know, myself and a couple other teammates kind of put in. We put, we put in the breakdown drills. We would go over it in scouting. And, um, you know, Coach Huggins even did a great job. If we were running it during the game, we'd come to the huddle and say, okay, you know, what can we tweak with the one three one? There was three different versions of it. Um, you know, should we go to a different version? How are we going to respond to, to this? And uh, he just listened and he empowered us. So that kind of helped me. And, um, you know, there was no pressure. I wasn't uh, playing. I didn't have to worry about preparation. I didn't have to worry about scoring points. I didn't have to worry about leading the team. I just had to worry about, uh, you know, helping others get better. So it, it kind of made me a better person because I, I, I didn't worry about myself as much as I did what I could learn from it. And it made me a better coach because the game just slowed down. And I, and I just... You know, to this day, I could probably take two or three sets from every team in the Big East um, that they run, and some of them still run the same ones today. Uh, and you know, how are we going to how are we going to guard it? How are we going to play against it? And then some stuff that we did against uh, you know some of the defensive philosophies from the coaches in the league at that time. Well, it sounded like you, you mentioned like getting outside yourself, and then it was more about the team than you. What did you do as a teammate? to help your teammates? Did you sit there and, you know, they come off the bench and you talk to them and tell them certain things you'd see? Would it be certain things in practice you might pull them aside? What would you do to be engaged in helping your teammates? Well, I think at that time, you know, we had a freshman point guard. Um, and, you know, I, I may have not have expressed it in, in the best way possible all the time, but really wanted to help him understand the importance of, of being a point guard, being a leader. And uh, I remember, you know, distinctly uh, we lost at Cincinnati. It was the first, it was uh, Hugs' first game back, and we lost. And, um, you know, the starting point guard at that time was just a little down. And, and, you know, the main thing that I tried to communicate to him was, hey, you know, this is about, we have to try to win this game for Coach Huggins, and, and this is what he does for us, and we owe this to him. Uh, we owe this to his family. So just kind of little talks like that. And you know, I wasn't the, the best at it all the time, but it, it definitely made me more aware of, of being a better teammate, stepping outside yourself, and, um, you know, just being able to watch other people be successful. I think that year we, we beat Pitt. Uh, we lost in the first round to Dayton. But, you know, I, I thought maybe people didn't expect us to make the NCAA tournament, and we still did. So what, what does Coach Huggins do so well to get, like you said, a, 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 you know, his, his players to say, hey, let's win for him, uh, almost like running through the wall for Coach. What does he do? Because I know he's a tough coach. I know he gives tough love. So what does he do that creates that relationship that you want to sit there and, and go, go fight and battle for him or run through a wall for him? Uh, he just has your back. Uh, he has your back. He's consistent. Uh, no matter what the situation is, you know that he, he – has your best interest. He has the team's best interest, and he has your best interest, and he holds you to a standard. Um, you know, so many kids nowadays, and, and in our time, we would battle complacency, battle human nature, and he's just so competitive. He always wanted to win. He always wanted to be the best. And you know, how do you not appreciate something like that? And, and don't get me wrong, there are days where you know we didn't want to, we didn't want to practice, we didn't want to play, but we understood that it was bigger than us, and, and that you know he was he was the leader, and you know he wanted to win, so. Uh, and he just cared so much about others. He cared about, uh, you know, part of him coming back to West Virginia was his care for Morgantown, was his care for the people, was his care for the blue-collar uh, personality that West Virginia had. So uh, you just kind of feed off that. And you know at the end of the day that uh, he cares about Joe Missoula, uh, the person, rather than Joe Missoula, the player. And, and that's something that you have to appreciate. Now, you 2009-2010, March Madness hits, you guys get to the Final Four. You you know hurt your shoulder, right shoulder, and you couldn't shoot free throws right-handed. You had to shoot left-handed. Did you have to shoot also your regular shots left-handed, or how did that work? Well, I know I'm left-handed, and I hurt my left. Oh, you're left-handed. I had to. 
Yeah, and I play okay. it right-handed. Now, some of, you know, the story's gotten, you know how, you know, myths are. The story's gotten better and better every single year. But in reality, I didn't shoot myself anyway. Um, so just with me coming back that year, I couldn't raise my left hand over 90 degrees. So I could dribble, I could pass, I just couldn't shoot. And I could shoot underhand layups. So um, it wasn't like I was out there shooting 35% from three with my opposite hand. Now, uh, I did have to shoot my free throws uh, right-handed and, um, you know, layups had to be right-handed, but uh, it was just, you know, it goes back to what we talk about being instilled uh, in our family and that competitive nature and that work ethic is, you know, no one was going to take me off the floor. I was going to do whatever I had to, uh, you know, to play for the team and, and to stay on that floor. So uh, that's where I really wanted to be, become a coach because I, I, in the Big East, if there was 10 guys on the floor, I was always the, the least talented. Being a PG, point guard playing at that level, and you being a coach, what do you think are the keys to being a great point guard? You got to be, you know, you, you have to be humble. You have to understand uh, what your team needs. Um, you know, so whether it's a scoring point guard, uh, whether it's a pass-first point guard, you just have to be the most consistent player on the floor. You have to know the other team's uh, defensive and offensive philosophies. You have to know what you want to do. Um, you know, what plays work best because the coaches are always going to call the play. Hugs might us call the play. And, uh, guys' personalities, and, you know, you have to earn guys' trust. And I think, you know, I wasn't the best player, but one of the biggest strengths I had was my teammates trusted me. Uh, they trusted me to guard the other team's best player. They trusted me with the ball. I was going to get to where it was going to go. And they trusted that I was an extension on the floor. And, you know, as a point guard, if you don't know your players and, and your teammates don't trust you, uh, you won't be successful. So there's no point guard is successful without, you know, making sure the other players are good. Now, is that something you as a PG, did you meet with Coach Huggins and – Beeline like so many times a week and have conversations with them to kind of find out, you know, what they need or what they wanted. Did you do that as well? You know, it was, I, I figured out that, you know, how am I going to stay on the floor? I'm going to stay on the floor by making sure I'm doing exactly what coach wants done and making sure the other four players are in the right spots. So I know I'm not going to stay on the floor by scoring 12 points or, you know, shooting 38% from three, but I know coach can't take me off the floor because he trusts, he knows that I'm going to make sure everybody's in the right spot. He knows that I'm going to be the uh, you know be the leader on defense and make sure that I'm setting the example from a from a toughness standpoint and from an energy standpoint. So I just had to make sure I did whatever I had to do to you know to to make sure I stay on the floor. So when coach goes to take me out, he's like you know we can't keep him out long because this is what he brings. Now you, this last year you had a great opportunity to be in the NBA with the D League of the main Red Claws and you know, associated with the Boston Celtics. And I know you said something out. you talked about just how much you learned throughout that year. You know, I tell a lot of people, when you're in college, you don't have the time to think basketball the way uh, the coaches do at the professional level. Um, so, you know, if you're on a college staff, obviously the head coach is huge on X's and O's. And maybe there's one other person that is really a basketball mind. Um, you know, other guys are recruiters, who's a fundraiser, who's a director of ops, who's a video guy. Um, you know, who's the, the graduate assistant, who checks classes, who's the academic guy. So not in all situations do you have more than, you know, one or two basketball minds. So in my time as a college coach, I was fortunate enough to be that basketball mind. So in my opinion, if I came out and said, hey, you know, we should run this set or we should go it this way, there wasn't much debate uh, because, you know, I was that basketball mind along with the head coach and maybe one or two other people. And you get to a situation in the D-League where it's more about development and it's more about people. We had five or six coaches, uh, assistant coaches, and we all had a specific thing that we were coaching. So now in a meeting, 
there's seven basketball minds. Uh, so my opinion or my idea may not be the best. And you have to be able to handle that. You have to be able to, to work with other people. You have to be able to be open to other schemes, other drills, other ways to, you know, to be efficient on offense and defense. And that was the biggest thing I learned was just working with other basketball minds. Got to spend a little time around, uh, not, not you know, with Coach Stevens at beatings and stuff, but we got to go to training camp, got to go to practice anytime. Uh, we had time off and just learned a lot from him. Uh, from a demeanor standpoint and, and from how great he breaks breaks the game down and how he teaches the game. So that was one thing you mentioned I was kind of interested in, is you said learn when to coach and when to let guys play and go through their own mistakes. Yeah, I think it's important. I think, you know, so many times we can get into overcoaching and we want everything to be perfect. And, you know, every individual workout was filmed. So if you're doing 10 reps – and it's the first month and a half that you're building this relationship. It's okay if he, in my opinion, this is my philosophy, it's okay if he doesn't do it perfect at the times because, you, you know, he's got to trust you, you got to trust him, and he's got to learn. And then you go back and tell. You know, one of the ways that I, uh, you know, gain that trust in the relationship with the athletes is you go back on film and say, hey, you know, this was the rep that I thought could have been a lot better. And then you wait for the game. And, you know, there will always be teaching points within a game, so you'd get four or five clips, whether it was from, the Celtics or from another NBA team and you're sitting down with them and you're saying, hey, remember how I was correcting you about this angle and, and this move that might have worked? Well, here's three examples of how uh, such and such did it or here's how the Cavs adapted to that. And then it's like, oh, okay, now I got you. So then that, that trust is built. Uh, and, and then you're able to go from there. So let's come full circle. As we mentioned earlier in the podcast that you just been named head coach at Fairmont State. Uh, University in West Virginia, which if some people know is a Division II school, and they played in the yep. national championship game this year uh, against Northwest Missouri State, um, where you know we're close to, and um, and you guys were ranked like number one throughout the uh, almost entire year. Had an incredible season. So you taken over, and you're an assistant coach there. Tell me this: What are you going to do now to come in? to kind of continue to build upon what you've guys done, but also to put your stamp on it. What is Coach Joe going to do um, to continue the program and the success you guys have had? Well, the first thing is not make it about me. And, you know, I mentioned this in my press conference. Usually when you're hired, uh, someone's gotten fired. The culture needs to be changed. I mean, you've heard all the press conferences. we got to come in and, and change this culture and, uh, we have to do X, Y, and Z. And, you know, this hiring, me coming here is a completely different situation. Um, it's at its pinnacle. It can get better, uh, but it's at its pinnacle. So the last thing I, I will do is come in here and make it about me and implement my own philosophy and, and my own stuff and think my way is the way that's going to make it work. And, um, you know, what we need to do is just find out how we can be 1% better. Um, you know, how we can just improve on the small things on a daily basis, uh, keep things as consistent as possible. Uh, the first meeting I had with uh, the individual players, I said, give me three things that you, you want to see run the exact same way as it ran last year. And then give me three things that you would improve. So uh, we're going to make sure that I uphold that standard and uphold that expectation. The three things that they want to improve, that's them. That was the people that were here last year. So we're going to work together to try and make it 1% better and uh, you know, keep this thing running. Joe, what are ways that people can, you know, get in contact with you? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm working to become better at social media. So I think right now, uh, as I'm in this transition, I'm working on my newsletter. But that's been the best way of networking and 
Uh, I'm a part of other people's newsletters. Uh, people are a part of mine. It's just a continuous cycle of learning where, you know, I have 10 unread emails of just articles that I can't wait to uh, whenever I'm out, whenever I get on the road recruiting and do things. So as of right now, I think the best way is email. Uh, and that is J and my last name, M-A-Z-Z-U-L-L-A, the number two, the number one at gmail.com. Yeah, I've enjoyed it because uh, a friend of mine, Scott Simpson, he kind of forwarded it to me and told me about you. So I like sent you an email and you've been sending information. I've been going through it, reading it. So it's uh, it, I love, like you said, the insights, the valuable information that you get and you pass on and, and then kind of sharing the game, making people better. And it's, uh, it's a great way to do it. And we'll put your information on the show notes and we'll make sure people have that. So they can reach out to you and, and communicate and stay in dialogue. And I'm sure if they, if there's any seven footers or there any six six guys that can jump forty six inches or, uh, you know, point guard that uh, can really go, you'd probably like to hear from them too, right? Absolutely, absolutely. We don't <laughs> seven footers don't really do well in Division Two, but anybody about six six to six eight that can shoot threes, let me know. You'll take them. Well, hey, send them your way, right? <laughs> absolutely. Your man in the middle, seven foot two. From a weird country called Lithuania. Head coach, Jim Huber. You sound like a, a big choo-choo train. I scored you the last two minutes, and I, I started falling, and they, they bring the white coats in here, and they, they put a jacket on me. I feel so good, I didn't mind. On the Breakthrough Basketball Radio Network. Hey, everybody. 